This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Louise Milligan, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks for having me. Um, this is going to be uh, an interesting podcast it, and, a con- and a controversial one. I've got to say, when I did tell um, a few people that we were chatting with you today, they advised me not to. Um, but I don't take advice that well. Mm, it, it, yeah, it's a, it's a surprising response for me, but I've got used to it. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a surprising response altogether, isn't it? I, I mean, I, you know without jumping straight into the the whole situation, you know, you don't hear this same sort of doubt of and distrust of a criminal conviction very often. People keep saying to me, wait for the appeal. Why? Why should I wait for the appeal? Every criminal appeals if they have resources and, you know, George Pell has significant resources. Exactly. And, you know, so he is doing what is his right, but I don't think that that means, you know, that you overturn centuries of of media tradition that once a conviction comes down, we can talk about it freely. Yeah. Okay, so it's Louise Milligan. Um, She's an investigative reporter for the top-rating ABC TV program Four Corners. She has covered the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child abuse and her exclusive stories for ABC's TV 7.30 about the allegations against George Pell. That won her the 2017 Gold Quill Award for the best story of the year, the highest honour in Victorian journalism. Congratulations. Thank you. For her 2017 book, Cardinal, which expands on her investigations into George Pell and the Catholic Church, Louise was awarded the prestigious Walkley Book Award, and she is here today to talk about the new edition, the 2019 edition published in March, and containing explosive new revelations about Pell and the church itself. So... It's an extraordinary story, um, and I want to firstly talk about Pell. I think it's interesting if we both just turn out, uh, you know, talk about our backgrounds, if that's okay, because, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, uh, probably because I'm not a journalist, you know, I might show a bit more bias than you do, um, but tell me, you know, did you grow up a Catholic and how you came to tell this story? Yes, I did grow up a Catholic, um, I, you know, my parents when I was a child were very committed Catholics. You know, at Easter, for instance, we would have Reconciliation Mass Wednesday night, Holy Thursday Mass Thursday night, Good Friday Mass Friday night, and then Easter Sunday Mass. And I remember making my first Holy Communion when I was eight, and, 
you know, my Irish Catholic nana who lived in Dublin saying it was the most important day of my life, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, so it it was something that, you know, was taken very, very seriously. I read the Bible cover to cover when I was eight and I loved it growing up and it was our community and our whole sort of belief structure. It's also good storytelling. Yeah, it is. And, you know, and culturally you sort of never really leave it. It's still in your bones. Um, I did decide to leave the church when I was in my teens. Um, I disagreed with the sort of, you know, the gender politics of not having women priests, but also the pronouncements that the church was making about women, about, you know, not being allowed to control their bodies, you know. At at that time in Ireland, you know, where our family was from, contraception was still not legal. Mm. Um, And, um, you know, I... I guess being a young teenager and, you you know, you're sort of discovering your sexuality and all of that sort of stuff. And it was like, why are these people telling me how to live my life? I think I'm a pretty good person and I don't want to be part of their organisation anymore if they are going to dictate to me how to live my life and make me feel bad about myself for being a normal teenager. Mm. I I mean, I felt the same when I grew up Catholic. Um, My parents were Maronite Catholics. Um, and uh, But I, it was the sermon at Mm. mass where I just felt that this was a whole lot of nonsense and as I grew up I decided it was you know these people were preaching to me that actually didn't know anything about the world Mm. Um, and that's when I just kind of thought I'm not this is not for me Mm. tell me about how George Pell grew up what do you know about that well, George grew up in Ballarat, which is, you know, like Dublin, a very deeply Catholic town. And uh, he, his father was actually Protestant, his mother Catholic, but she was a Bob Santa Maria acolyte. And, uh, you know, I think they had a picture of Daniel Mannix on the wall. And um, George went to St. Patrick's uh, in Ballarat, which was um, the... Christian Brothers run school and he was a star pupil. He was, you know... Intellectually. Intellectually, physically, he was a great footballer. He was actually chosen for Richmond. Um, He was on every single team. He was a great runner. He was a great rower. Um, He used to give what was known as the Purton Oratory, which was, you know, a speech um, for the school. And, you know, he was a impressive young man and the local bishop at the time, Bishop O'Collins, had him marked out for greatness. And so he was sent to Propaganda Fide um, in Rome after going to Corpus Christi College, which was the training seminary for priests in uh, in Werribee in Melbourne. And then he went on to Oxford. So, you know, this was a deeply ambitious man who, you know, was bright but perhaps not questioning. Mm. He has always favoured a very clericalist model of Catholicism. And by that, in simplest terms, I would mean a model that is about telling you how to live your life and not to question He was very good at that, telling you how to. I mean, I remember a few years back he was writing for various newspapers, maybe the Herald, he was all the age, 
And, you know, every feature piece was telling us how to live our life. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, he's an extraordinarily judgmental person. So, you know, there is great irony in the fact that this person who was wrapping us all over the knuckles for not living up to his noble ideals of what, you know, a Christian Catholic society should be, this person is now in jail and on the sex offenders register. Mm, a convicted criminal. Exactly, convicted by a jury of his peers. Mm. Okay, so the bigger subject here is, you know, this is this is happening all around the world. I just want, firstly want to talk about the institution, um, the Catholic Church itself. And I was doing my research for this podcast and I wondered how many countries have been affected by this scandal, how many have experienced it, because I know, you know, that there are the, the more... Um, uh, ones that I, I know about that have been in, in the media, like Boston, and, and for example. But um, I discovered there are about 25 countries at mm -hmm. this point now where these scandals are either known or they're going to court or people mm -hmm. have been convicted. Mm -hmm. To me, it seems like an epidemic. Mm, absolutely. And, I mean, what great coincidence that this same modus operandi was was operating in all of these dioceses and archdioceses around the world. I mean, I had someone contact me recently from Tanzania, mm. you know, saying that they didn't know what to do because, you know, the bishop was covering up a priest who mm. had offended there. Um, it's, it's the same MO wherever you go and, uh, you know, what I discovered for the book is that um, this wasn't an accident. Um, there was a canon law policy known as the Pontifical Secret, and that was to apply to, amongst other things, um, child sexual abuse by clergy. And the Pontifical Secret found that, you know, if there was an allegation about a priest of this nature, the bishop was not to tell anyone. And so when the Towards Healing Scheme was being developed, um, which was the church's response to this issue um, back in the 90s, uh, then Auxiliary Bishop Geoffrey Robinson, who, who developed it, um, deliberately um, would encourage people to go to the police because he knew that as soon as the church got involved, the cover-up would begin. To me, it sounds like a pedophile ring. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it, we don't know what went on behind closed doors, but you only have to look at a place like St. Olypius or St. Patrick's in Ballarat where, you know, you had a ring of pedophile brothers and you had Gerald Ridsdale, who was probably Australia's worst pedophile, full stop, let alone... Catholic clergy pedophile. He was living there. George Pell was... He had access. Right. And and George Pell was living in the seminary. And, you know, if you go to St. Lee Pierce, like, that's not the seminary, I should say, the presbytery. The, the church and the presbytery are right next to the school where this is all happening. And George Pell tried to say to the Royal Commission that, you know, he didn't see this happening. But it is very hard to believe. I mean... I do say in the book that I think the fact that they live together in the presbytery doesn't necessarily mean that he knew what Ridsdale was doing. 
But the fact that he just didn't get wind of any of this, mm. it, it just beggars because, disbelief. Well, yeah, it does, because Ridsdale, what is it, a couple of hundred children at least, isn't it? That's what it's estimated to be. Yes. Um, I mean, he he just went to particular parishes, Mortlake is a good example, in the far western part of the Ballarat Diocese, a tiny town, and and he decimated that school. Mm. I mean, the nun who was the principal talked about, you know, every boy in a particular class. And, and, and he, in his own words, I think, you know, he, I can't remember exactly what it was he said, but that he just, he just went crazy there. Do you know, you know, that story is so shocking. And I, again, I went to it um, in preparation for this conversation today. It is so shocking. I want to know how the parents in that community dealt with it. You know, how terrible and powerless they must have felt. Well, the point is that they actually tried to go to the powers that be. They tried to go to Brian Finnegan, who was the um, vicar general, I think, at the time of the Ballarat Diocese and was certainly working with the Bishop Mulkerns. And they were turned away, you know, Um there were by several whom? by whom by by Brian Finnegan, um, who, right. who went on to be auxiliary bishop of uh, Brisbane, and you know gave evidence to the royal commission that was quite frankly gobsmacking. Now this is a good friend of Pell's, mm. and when he was on the consultors committee to the bishop, which was the committee of priests that advised the bishop or worked with the bishop in priestly movements around the diocese, well George Pell was on that too. And there were three people, four people at one time who knew about what was happening with Ridsdale, who've admitted to that, or there is evidence to show that they knew. So there was a Monsignor Fiscalini, there was Bishop Mulkerns, there was Brian Finnegan, there was um, someone else. But, um, you know, George Pell, his evidence to the Royal Commission was that, you know, none of these... People said that, despite the fact that they kept having to move this guy, sometimes in the middle of the night, you know, mm. because things had got so bad in the town. I mean, he was getting chased out of towns. Mm. It happened in Apollo Bay, it happened in Inglewood, you know. Like it, he was, the parents were furious. And, you know, parents knew, the town doctor knew in Mortlake, you know, the principal of the school. And the principal of the school asked the bishop for help for the children, like once Ridsdale had left, and when he was getting counselling in New Mexico in this this um, place where they sent pedophile priests and the nun to, to was because... told oh, to supposedly cure them, which we all know now mm. doesn't work, but um, the nun who was the principal of the school was told that she she could not do anything to help the children and she's had to live with that. And, you know, I, I do think that the nuns, you know, were very disempowered in this whole situation. Oh, I think they still are. Yeah. Um, talk to me about how you came to this story. Mm-hmm. Well, I was um, working at the time for the ABC TV 730 program and um, I had just come back from covering the awful executions of... Myron Sukumaran and Andrew Chan Murder. in Indonesia. Yeah, I, that was a very, very difficult time for Terrible. me. I, and time for our whole country, I think. Mm. Um, and I was very bruised by mm. that process. And I remember my boss at the time saying to me, how would you feel about, you know, going to 
cover the Royal Commission. Um, and, you know, being, I suppose, a, you know, a former Catholic who still had, you know, a great interest in the church, I, I jumped at the opportunity even though... It was uh, going to be depressing. Yeah, uh, hugely and cha- life-changing. Yes. Um, Louise, we do have some international list- listeners. Can you tell us a little bit about the Royal Commission, what it is? Yes. So the Royal Commission um, into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, it's a mouthful, was a five-year uh, inquiry that the uh, federal government set up. It was set Julia up... Julia Gillard, I that's think. That's right, by Julia Gillard, who was Australia's first and only... Uh, female Prime Minister. Um, She set it up after a um, policeman, Peter Fox, who was in the Newcastle Diocese, blew the whistle on what was happening there. And, uh, you know, I think we can safely say that it was Julia Gillard's greatest legacy. And there has been a lot of discussion about whether, you know, it would have happened had it have been a male Prime Minister. You know, you do wonder. And certainly you do wonder whether her successor, Tony Abbott, friend of George Pell, mm. who's written... Didn't a reference? He Didn't wrote he a reference. A reference? Yep. Um, and he... Um, he has defended George Pell. Um, of course he has. Many times. Mm. Um, you do wonder whether he would have set it up, although it was bipartisan at the time, to be fair. But anyway, um, so this was a five-year inquiry, which was not set up to look at the Catholic Church per se, but a huge you know, number of the cases that they looked at were from the Catholic Church. There were 4,444. I remember at the time um, that Julia was very particular about saying this isn't an inquiry into the Catholic Church, this is an inquiry into child abuse, and she was being very careful about that. Mm. But without a doubt... It is the, the biggest offender, isn't it? Yes, it is, and the, and the stats show that. And, yeah. you know, the next one down, and forgive me, I can't remember the stats off the top of my head, but the next closest, um, you know, institution is just nowhere near the numbers of the Catholic Church and also nowhere near the sort of percentage of the population. So it was definitely, you know, something which was going to be, you know, a complete game changer for the Catholic Church. And I think, you know, there was political pressure but there was also, we had already seen what had happened um, in, in, in Boston, for instance. So the word was out, finally, mm. um, and not not by the church. I mean, they were forced to come out in every single scenario. Completely. I mean, I mean, Pell's words at the time were, you know, we're not the only cat on the rank. And, you know, he actually said, you know... That that it might. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but it might re-traumatise victims to hear this sort of stuff. And you know, we've all heard about all this endlessly. Well, actually, the material that came out was absolutely jaw-dropping. And you know, I've read hundreds, maybe thousands of pages of evidence to the Royal Commission. And the thing that sort of got me was the material between, for instance, the Catholic Church insurers and the lawyers or Catholic Church insurers and the local bishop or vicar general, material that they never thought would go into the public domain. Um, And, you know, how calculated it all was. Yeah, how calculated the cover-up was. Um, and how the supposed responses that the Catholic Church 
initiated were deeply flawed. I mean, the, 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 the classic one, of course, is the Melbourne response. So George Pell um, set up the Melbourne response in 1996, three months after becoming Archbishop of Melbourne. Uh, he was told by the Premier of Victoria, Jeff Kennett, at that time that, you know, if he didn't do something about it, he would sort of thing. So... Because everybody knew. Well, at that time, there was a tsunami of complaints um, coming towards the Melbourne Archdiocese, and George Pell knew that. And, you know, the media was starting to really arc up and the survivors were starting to get politicised. Um, so he set up this scheme, which was supposedly to help people. Now... We now know that that scheme was set up in October and in the December he was raping choir boys. Well, he was raping a choir boy and seriously sexually abusing his friend. So, I mean, that is just so astonishing to to think that that happened. Mm. But when you look at the Melbourne response, this supposed response to this, you know, crisis, George Pell always talks about how he was the first first bishop in Australia, if not the world, to to bring in a scheme of this kind. (laughs) You talk to the other bishops who were developing towards healing, which was the national scheme and had been for quite some time. He basically jumped in Mm. and set up his own scheme where there was a cap on the compensation of $50,000. So you got less under the Melbourne response than what you got under towards healing. But also, you know, they had been working really hard to try and come up with something that the rest of the church felt good about. I want to touch on that comment that you made, that while he's putting this um, in, pro- in, in process and, and while he's implementing this plan, he is still the, a perpetrator. How, talk to me about how somebody like him can reconcile that with himself. I think the psychology of George Pell is absolutely fascinating. And, you know, what I always used to say before the conviction came down was if these complaints are true. Now, I didn't disbelieve that they were true, but, you know, now we can say that a jury has found that they were, they were true. It, it suggests sociopathic denial. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Anthony Foster the wonderful survivor advocate whose daughters were abused by a priest and he went to see George Pell and there's a famous story where him and his wife Chrissy showed George Pell a picture of their daughter who had slashed her wrists and he said, oh, she's changed. And Anthony described it under parliamentary privilege in the Victorian Parliament as a sociopathic lack of empathy. Mm. And, you know, I think, yeah, it's fascinating. I saw him, and I can't remember when this was, but I saw it on television in the last couple of years of him apologising. I don't know if you saw this. Was that the Royal Commission? I'm not quite sure. Where he did not even look up from reading the paper. No. And he was he was he had some piece of paper in his hand. Somebody told him, probably his solicitors, uh, you need to apologise, mm. with absolutely cold-hearted, no sincerity, and really, I'm only doing this because I have to. There was that famous quote uh, in the Royal Commission, it was a sad story, but it wasn't of much interest to me. Mm. And he afterwards, you know, did an interview with Andrew Bolt, his chosen Ugh. interviewer, who... Um, 
you know, he, he kind of said to him basically that he, you know, he was kind of, it was a brain snap, you know, like that of course he cared and all this. Sort of, he's not very good at expressing himself in this way. And, and Bolt actually did give him a bit of a, you know, touch up about that. You know, you're not very good at, you know, expressing empathy. And when he said that, um, there was a really fascinating moment in the interview where George Pell said words to the effect of he had this temper and then he sort of had to keep it at bay. And that, when I heard that and I knew about the types of offending that had been alleged about him, it was this transitory, unplanned, opportunistic grabbing mm. or, you know, just it comes from nowhere. Mm. And, 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 you know, the survivor says, what, what, did that really happen? The kid's just going, what? Mm. It, you, you know, there's no warning and I thought, right, so there's an anger in this, there's a violence in this. What does that mean, you know? I mean, you know, I've had people say to me, oh, his dad was a boxer and heavyweight boxer and mm. very pugilistic type of man and certainly Pell, you know, has always lived his life and prosecuted his arguments in a pugilistic way um, and people have said to me, you know, maybe what well, well, was his dad like that with him, you know, mm. like what happened, you know, I mean, that I have absolutely no idea. I have no idea but there's something going on beneath the surface there that is I mean, troubling. to me, he was always, he always presented as godlike, that he was the ultimate authority, you know, on everything, on morals, on values, on everything else, and yet he was living this life. Well, isn't that convenient mm. if you have that godlike sort of um, authoritarian way about you? if you are someone who is predisposed to uh, crimes against children, um, people are scared of you. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You know, people, so many people who were in his orbit in various ways in the church, be it former seminarians, former priests, you know, the rector of the... Um, of the seminary, people like that, you know, the the, the constant theme is of a bully, mm -hmm. someone who rides rudge, roughshod over his enemies. Mm -hmm. 
And it's certainly not the message that I got at school of what it is to be a Christian and to be Christ-like. It doesn't wash with that at all. And that's one thing I find really hard to get my head around. You know, both him and the people who defend him, who claim to be Christians, I can't see Jesus Christ in any of this. Mm. And it's so bizarre. Like, how does this happen? How does a faith-based institution which preaches a message of love get so far away from that but message? But I think, I think that that is the dilemma, if you like. I mean, that's not the right word. But is it is it that or is it a pedophile ring that has a distraction? I mean, when you... when. I went, I mean, the book is fantastic, but you go to that, you know, where you list the people in the back and almost every mm. one of them is a serial pedophile. It strikes me that how on earth, why has this institution not been shut down? Why? I mean, if you're a company, that's not sustainable. The, the, yeah, the CEO would be sacked. Yeah, that's um, right. The board would, would have to step down and resign. Yeah. So, you know, to talk about faith, it's not even about faith. These people weren't about faith. Mm. This is an institution that's corrupt, that has, you know, lost its way, and I don't know for how it's, it seems to be, it go way back. I mean, I'm surprised it's still standing. It should not be standing. I mean, th th that's the issue. It's not about faith. It, um, it's about child protection. Exactly. And they failed children. And they continue to insist, for instance, that, you know, that the seal of confessional cannot be broken. Mm. You know, any other person That's convenient. Who, well, yes, but also, I mean, and it's not necessarily true that, you know, there are a whole lot of... Um, uh, pedophiles who are going to, you know, confess to to what they have done in the confessional. But but the Royal Commission did find that some did, and certainly that was the case overseas as well. But children also might confess about it, you know, and it's just, you know, it's like child protection just doesn't actually come into the equation. And why? Why are they exempt from that? Uh, because they say they are. I mean, <laughs> Wayne Chamley, who is um, from the Broken Rights Advocacy Group, said to me that he sees the Catholic Church as being like a, in a state of anarchy because it acts outside the law. It has its own laws, canon laws, like the Pontifical Secret, like there's another one. Um, mental reservation. I don't know if you... So the, I write about this in the book. Mental reservation is a Jesuitical concept which basically s states that you can tell an ambiguity in real life if in your head you tell your truth to God. So strict mental re reservation says you can tell a lie if you tell your truth to God. Mm -hmm. But the, the one that they still use is, 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 is this other one where it's an ambiguity. Anyway, the classic example is the Nazis come to the door and a priest is hiding Jews in the attic and the Nazis say to the priest, uh, do you have Jews in this house? And the priest says, no. And in his head to his God, he says, 
not for you, Nazi. Mm. So the Murphy report, which was the landmark report into um, this offending in Dublin, in Ireland, found that um, mental reservation was being employed by bishops uh, in these cases. So essentially they would use ambiguous language. Now, when people went back and had a look at George Pell's Royal Commission evidence, in fact, some of the survivors who were sitting there in Rome who knew about mental reservation, they said to me they thought he was employing it when he said things like, no one said anything about pedophilia. But then there was this slight question... Because we didn't label it. Right, and the, but also the, the chair of the Royal Commission, um, Peter McClellan... Uh, said to him, but there's a bit of a distinction in the church between pedophilia, i.e. children under the age of 11 and children over post-adolescent boys. Um, and, and George Pell noted, yes, there was a distinction in the literature. So I then went and had a look at the literature. I'm just thinking, what? And in fact, there are a number of conservative um, Catholic um, Journals in the, the sort of north northern um, America who have talked about it, well actually it wasn't pedophilia it was a fibophilia in most cases so it was kids who were over the age of eleven so basically the theme of that is you just need to weed out the homosexuals mm. and then you know. Because all homosexuals rape. Because all hom- <laughs> well, because all homosexuals are bad, according oh, to the course. church. Yeah, of course. So it's yeah. not a problem with us. Yeah. It's a problem with the homosexuals. Yeah. But the thing that's so jaw-dropping about that is this granular distinction is completely meaningless to the victims. And I have spoken to the victims from both sides of, you know, pre-11, post-11. And... They're just as profoundly destroyed by abuse, no matter what their age is. And, you know, the thing about this is Catholic priests, as you and I were sort of brought up, you know, were meant to represent everything that is good in the world. If you are abused by someone who is meant to represent everything that is good in the world. It does a fundamental thing Mm. to a child's psychology because who can you trust? If you can't trust that person who's supposed to be godlike, who can you trust? And, you know, it it really damages kids. And I talk about... um, It, It damages kids because it's violent. It's a violation. It's abuse. It's... Yes, but the research shows that that they go then on this terrible trajectory. Mm. And so, you know, around the age of 11 or 12, you know, the boys in particular are already starting to act out and Mm. everyone's kind of getting sick of them. And, you know, by the time they're sort of in their teens, they're going into juvenile justice and then, you know, they end up in the prison system or they end up being drug addicts or alcoholics and, you know, that means that when they do average of 33.3 years come forward, um, they're not great witnesses because they're seen as someone who's not credible when in fact their life path is exactly the path 
of someone who has had their world destroyed when they were a little child. Mm. Can you talk about some of the victims that you met? Mm. Um, um, you know, the, just on that, that theme I've just been talking about, the, the, the two men who made allegations about George Pell to me about the Eureka Pool, um, they grew up in... Um, in, in Ballarat and went to St. Alipius, this ground zero of childhood sexual abuse. They both had previous abusers and in one of their cases his brother was also abused and he suicided and his wife was also abused and she suicided. And so this guy, whose name is Lyndon Monument, he just ceased to cope and he turned to drugs and you know life went pretty badly for him um the other one um Damien Dignan um when he says he told me that when he told his mother about the first abuse that he had from another person um, she hit him around the face with her shoe and told him he was dirty so when I asked him, you know, how he felt about telling her about George Pell, he said, of course he couldn't. And his life went spectacularly off the rails. And when I met him in 2016, he was living in a granny flat at the back of a, a friend's place and he had chronic leukaemia, he was an alcoholic and he was four years older than me, he looked about 20 years older than me, and he shuffled around like an old man. And uh, he had, you know, lost his family, his kids. He had had criminal convictions. He was a deeply, deeply sad and broken individual. And Damien was the first person to come forward after the choir boy um, he didn't know about the choir boy he was sitting watching the Royal Commission in May 2015 in Ballarat and he was with his friend an elderly woman and, and he disclosed to her for the first time what had happened to him with Pell and she said oh Damien you've got to go down there and you know mm. you've got to tell them and so he did and he shuffled down there and I remember talking to the person at the Royal Commission who, who we actually spoke to and they said, you know, he wanted nothing. Like, you know, of course he, he wanted nothing. But you know, he said, you know, sometimes there's this perception, oh, well, they're after um, compensation or something like that. He just shuffled in there, mm. told his story, and shuffled out. And they sent him to Task Force Sano, and you know, then this kind of, mm. you know, process started. But Damien, um, Damien, did you know, make his complaint to police. But um, in January 2018, um, Damien died. So he, um, I remember Lyndon, who was his, you know, best friend at school, um, who was one of the other boys at the Eureka Pool, um, saying to me when I first met him and he told me about Damien, that Damien was drinking himself to death. Mm. And uh, he did have this chronic leukaemia and so on, but, yeah... 
I um, in the past couple of months, I've seen, and you might have seen it. There's been this video of Sinead O'Connor mm-hmm. going around. Have you seen that? Um, and she, back in 1992, she was I a remember young girl. That well, yeah where she actually took them to task. She started speaking up about uh, the abuse in and the Catholic And people were horrified. They were booing her. Yeah. There's a, there's a video um, of her being booed off stage. I do remember that very mm. clearly. People and thought she was mad. People thought she was mad. And I often wonder how much she knew. Well, she was a survivor, mm. um, but, yeah. Yeah. And that was back then. And, you know, I think even now people don't want to believe it. They just don't want to believe it. It's astonishing to me, um, the people who still don't want to believe it, despite, you know, all the very, very careful years of work that was Mm -hmm. done by the Royal Commission and those statistics, as I said, 4,444 people. And yet still there's this idea that it didn't happen and, and certainly... You know, when it comes to George Pell's conviction, um, you know, people sort of saying, oh, but it happened after a Sunday solemn mass and they were processing out of the church and then he's supposed to have gone back to the sacristy? The sacristy? How could this happen in the sacristy? And it's like, oh, there was a priest who raped someone at an altar, you know, people Mm. who did it in the seminary. There were people who did it in classrooms. There were people who did it out in the open air, like it happened all sorts of places Mm. with impunity. Um, Why is George Pell so different? He's not. Um, So for you, Louise, how long have you been working on this? Well, on the actual Pell investigation about the allegations against him for three years um, in February. And when did you write the book? I wrote it. Um, between August and it was it's August 2016 and then it was published in May 2017. And then it was removed off the shelves, is that right? In Victoria, um, we voluntarily removed it from the jurisdiction while the charges were, were going, while the case was going. There was this, you know, misnomer that it had been banned, no one banned it, but... Um, we had always, you know, thought that if he was charged that, you know, that that's what we would do. But it remained for sale in the rest of the country and, you know, has mm. been a bestseller. Um, What's been the reaction to it? The, the reaction to me has been unbelievably, overwhelmingly positive. Um, I receive letters from people, you know, every week. I have done the whole time. Um, people who are survivors, people who are Catholics, who are disaffected and devastated by this terrible history. Um, and, you know, the most common thing I get from people is I read it in three days. I couldn't put it down except for when I, you know, threw it across the room in anger. That's a very, very common comment. Um, so, yeah, it's been great. There has been a small rump of um, largely conservative commentators who have tried to paint my painstaking investigative journalism as a witch hunt. Um, that, that word is used often, though. I think Pell used that word even, that, you know, there's, some, there's a witch hunt against the Catholic Church. Well, it's not if there's nothing there, is there? Yeah, and I mean... 
One of the tropes that's been used by these people since the conviction was that he's the new Lindy Chamberlain. Oh, so I mean, it's just not even vaguely comparable. His victim, or the you know, the victim is alive mm-hmm. and is not a baby. And, and he can tell us. And and he did. And a jury of his peers believed him. And he spent four years from start to finish, from his first complaint to police to the conviction um, being made public. And it is a terrible process to go through. It's oh. a shocking process. You wouldn't be doing it for fun. Well, no, and what, what are you going to gain out of it? He has no relationship to George Pell outside of this. I, I mean... It just it defies any sort of logic that someone would do this if they're mentally well, you know, not um, floridly mentally ill, which he's mm. not. Why you would just give up? But also, too, it's not just this that has come up, and it's not it's not like Sydney's a one or Ballarat is a one off case. This is happening all over the world. Exactly. So we have got an epidemic going on here. Yeah. But you know, and you would have read this as well. Back in February, Pope Francis started to talk about the sexual abuse of nuns, mm. and the the inference there is we haven't even started to look at that. Yeah, I've certainly been contacted by um, people who um, you know have terrible stories to tell in that terrible. regard. Terrible. Mm. Terrible. I, I, the nuns, um, you know, have got a really raw deal. And one thing that was really interesting to me is that the nuns that I sort of spoke to off the record for the book, I could never get a nun to speak on the record. Mm. And I think that's because they continue to be disempowered in the church. Mm. So we've got children and now we've got, we're moving towards, you know, a whole other um, area in the Catholic Church where abuse has been rampant, mm. and yet the church still exists. It makes me furious. It makes me Look, furious. I mean, I, I'm not one who is calling for the abolition of the church because I do think that there are a lot of really good people doing wonderful work in the church, and the nuns are a really good example of that. My dad is still a very committed Catholic, mm. and he um, he does very good work. Um, as do the nuns that he works with, you know, charity work. Um, And the church has been very good at um, filling the gap sometimes where government lets us down. And that, you know, I have been so moved by the decency and goodness in many Catholics who have come into my orbit through this whole process. But you know, the institutional church has let them down. And, you know, I do think that Francis, you know, he, he, he says the right thing at times, but he really needs to put his, not his money where his mouth is, but he, he needs to act. He does need to act. Um, tell me, so with George Pell now, I mean, he's convicted. He's also, is he a convicted pedophile? Is he on the yes. register? T- talk to me about that. Yes, well, um, when... Chief Judge of the County Court, Peter Kidd, um, gave him his sentence, um, which was six years minimum of three years and eight months non-parole. At the end of that process, Pell sat there and signed the sex offender register, and that was a really powerful moment in that courtroom. You know, you just could have cut the air with a knife and... I was sitting near the um, 
the parents of um, the boy who um, who who died, who was uh, George Pell's victim, and you know they were very tearful, emotional. At time. Yeah. yeah. What happens if the conviction is overturned on appeal? Does he still stay on the register? Well, how does that work? No, I don't think so. No. So he gets absolved of everything if that were to happen. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on what the process is. Generally, in these sorts of cases, I'm advised that they don't do a retrial, Mm -hmm. that it's either, you know, it it stays or it goes. Um, So, yeah, in that, Mm. excuse me, in that circumstance, he would be, um, he would be, in the eyes of the law at least, exonerated. However, of course, there is the Royal Commission's report. That's still to come. That's still to come. Um, it, it has been delivered, the, the full report of the Royal Commission, uh, in 2017, but it came down before Pell was actually um, charged. Sorry, it came down after Pell was actually charged and the Royal Commission didn't want to um, influence the jury. So all of the sections that relate to Pell are redacted black so there's like pages and pages of blacked out stuff mm. it doesn't look good for George Pell and so you know there is still that well, it's not a hurdle because I don't think he can overcome it you know they, they if they've made bad findings about adverse findings about him then that remains has he been given special treatment do you think he certainly had an extraordinary legal process, which I have not seen um, as someone who has covered courts on and off for 20 years as a journalist. I mean, for instance, we still, to this day, do not know the nature and quantum of the charges and the number of complainants who first put in complaints about him and he was charged in relation to those back in uh, June 2017. Um, that has never been made public. Now, normally, in any other situation like that, when Victoria Police or New South Wales Police does a press conference about, you know, a high-profile case, they will tell you what the person's charged with. They will tell you how many complaints there are, what the charges are, who, how many people there are none of that happened um and so they the words used at the time were he has been charged with historic sexual offenses and that was the only thing that we could say for a long time um so yes and i think what was happening there is that the office of public prosecutions was playing a long game and that game was concede, 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 acquiesce in what the defence wants so that no one can say that this was a show trial, a witch hunt, that this man got everything that he could possibly want. Um, And yet still, despite expensive and brutal legal counsel for him, he was convicted. Mm. Louise Milligan, um, thank you so much. The book is called New Revelations, Cardinal, 
Um, it's the rise and fall of George Pell. Um, extensive body of work. Uh, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.